If you had said to me just before the pandemic that LDV would be the company first to field an electric ute in Australia, I would have recommended even stronger medication, dude. And yet, this is exactly the position we find ourselves in. So in this report, I'm going to reverse engineer exactly what LDV has revealed about the country's first electric ute, the better for you to understand exactly what's going to be on offer. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap. No electric utes yet, however, perhaps this will change in the future. Anyway, if you're interested, Australia only, there's Lee, website, card. Now, I want to start by saying that they do deserve some credit for doing something that no other established player in the market seems to have been able to do in this country, despite our fascination with utes, and also... Elon Musk. They've out-cyber-trucked Elon Musk everywhere in the world, but imminently in Australia, because the LDV ET60 exists. Salient point of difference. Expecting some hate in the comments from you Tesla fanboys? Don't disappoint me. Now, here's what they say. LDV leads Australia into the future. Well, I'd suggest that that's bullshit because the second law of thermodynamics imprints the arrow of fucking time on the universe and thus it is what leads everything into the future. That it basically orders everything up. Otherwise, everything would just happen contemporaneously outside the time domain. That's pretty scary, isn't it? Here's what they say. Not since the brand's launch in 2014... Narcolepsy warning, okay? Has there been such a fundamental step change in product strategy? <coughs> Where once LDV was synonymous with value-driven motoring, they mean cheap, nasty shitboxes, now LDV is setting the agenda for commercial electric vehicles in Australia. They're still selling a fair few cheap, nasty, shitty vehicles, though. I mean, come on. I suggest that this is what masturbation in public actually looks like, right? So allow me to retort, LDV dudes, kindly urinate well away from me, you shameless barrow pushers. Like, when I look at LDV objectively, dude, they're still overwhelmingly cheap utes and vans. That's just how they roll. Why don't we just be honest about it and talk about the friggin' Ute instead? So anyway, they go on and say LDV is backed by the Shanghai Automotive Investment Corporation, which is also the case with MG, but the salient difference in Australia, just FYI, is that MG is a factory-owned import operation in Australia, and they have a large dealer network, 83 or something from memory, and thus they're in a better position to offer national support, and they're philosophically well aligned with the factory to do that, whereas LDV is imported by Atico, which is kind of in the game for itself, and widely acknowledged as being fairly shit at support. So that's something to bear in mind if you are considering this vehicle or indeed any LDV. 
Anyway, LDV is backed by SAIC, one of the world's largest OEMs with extensive experience as an electric vehicle manufacturer in arguably the fastest growing EV market in the world. It either is or it isn't. I mean, that's an objective thing. It's not, not a matter of opinion. Either China is the fastest EV market in the world growing or it's not, dudes. The new models are ET60, Australia's first fully electric ute, E-Deliver 9, an electrified version of LDV's segment-leading large van, <laughs> and Mifa 9, who sounds like a porn star but is really a luxury electric people mover, and who doesn't want one of those for moving all of those luxury electric people around? Ah, uh, quote from the boss, always good to have them, Dinesh Chinapa, general manager of LDV Australia. What was second prize, Dinesh? He says, the global auto market is undergoing its most significant revolution in decades. Well, name all of the other significant revolutions which this one is competing against, dude. Every major OEM is committed to developing electric vehicles. Now we're speaking for the whole industry. That's interesting. They usually refrain from that. Anyway, but what is less spoken about is the growing influence of China's EV market on the rest of the world. And we in Australia are now benefiting from that influence with the arrival of the ET60, E-Deliver 9, and the porn star Mifa 9. So I'd suggest that toning down the China rhetoric might be a good idea for Australia because of the you know, economic tension, etc. I mean, Dutto, Mr. Potato Head, he'd prefer to be at war with them. And there are several people who think Dutto is God. I'm not one of them. Not so sure how much of a benefit, this, this alleged benefit, we in Australia are now benefiting from that influence. We're not now benefiting from that influence because this hasn't happened yet, but I'm not exactly so sure how much of a benefit that's going to be in any case, dude. Anyway, he goes on because CEOs of car companies, they, they just don't understand that less is more. In the first half of 2022, 2.4 million EVs were delivered to customers in China, Narcolepsy warning, how relevant is that here? More than double the total annual new car market here in Australia. This is still Dinesh talking, believe it or not. He is breathing, I'm sure. EVs now account for 26% of all car sales in China. Well, who friggin' rate China? And 57% of global EV sales. Now, I can only go on what the words mean and the structure of the sentences. So EVs now account for 26% of all car sales in China, check, and 57% of global EV sales. Like, how can EVs account for 57% of global EV sales? Hashtag English. China is moving ahead in electrifying its transport industry and it's bringing the rest of the world, including Australia, with it. Well, thank you so much, Dinesh, for painting the picture that we in Australia will be led around as if at the local agricultural show with a ring through our nose by our soon-to-be masters in China. Not sure I like this picture so far, just saying. From a framing the debate point of view, I think this whole release is a bit of a fail, but anyway. I still haven't got to what the vehicle is about yet, for example. So, L this is still Dinesh, like, 
So LDV is well placed to take advantage of this new model EV rollout and we're delighted to share some top line pre-launch information with you. Who is we? Anyway, headlining This Is Not Dinesh Anymore is taking a breather because that was like four or five paragraphs. Nasty business. Headlining this new product onslaught from November 2022, that's just 30-something sleeps away. It will be the all-new LDV ET60, the ute we're about to reverse engineer, Australia's first fully electric ute. <laughs> Take that, electric Jesus. Based on the successful T60 model, meaning it's a T60 with an electric drivetrain, which has been embraced by hard-working Australians to the tune of 22,092 since the launch, ET60 brings the highly specified value-focused ute into the EV space. <laughs> yes, now, 2017 launch for the T60, if memory serves. I jotted down some numbers just so we could see how highly successful, embraced by hardworking Australians, etc., this vehicle actually is. 2,733 T60 sales to the end of August this year, so latest sales figures available at the time of recording this video. That's a 41% reduction on the same period in 2021. Dude's like, well done there. So friggin' popular, so successful. And that means, if you extrapolate that up, shooting for about 4,100 sales this year versus 6,700 last year. Well done, go LDV. <laughs> Backwards. Anyway, offered initially in four by two double cab guys, G-U-I-S-E, not G-U-I-S, just for complete disambiguation. Let me translate single motor, okay? I don't know which end, but single motor. Could be front drive, that'd be fun. Uh, the ET60 is powered by an 88.5 watt hour lithium ion battery pack. Good for a combined WLTP of 330 kilometers. That's the most recent uh, fuel efficiency standard test protocol. Right, there's a little hatty thing caveat on this one, so we'll get to the caveats. Charging from 5 to 100% using an 11 kilowatt charger, which means you've got to have three-phase power for that, dude. So anyway, it takes approximately nine hours with another little caveat disclaimer. While the ET60's DC fast charging capability, which is not specified, will charge from 20 to 80% in approximately 45 minutes. Now, the caveats on all of that. Charging times vary based on factors including but not limited to charger type and condition, battery temperature, electricity supply, auxiliary consumables, e.g. air conditioning, and environmental conditions. The time taken for successive rapid charging can take longer if the battery temperature activates the battery safeguarding technology. So whatever we say, it's going to be more than that basically. And then the second caveat disclaimer thingo in, you know, four-point Helvetica, extra fine, light grey, right down the bottom on the back page that they didn't really bother printing anyway, says that range figures are determined by testing under standardised laboratory conditions to comply with ADR 8102, like there was a choice. These figures should only be used for the purpose of comparison amongst vehicles, meaning 
between vehicles if we want to use His Royal Highness the King's English. Actual figures will generally differ under real-world driving conditions and will vary depending on factors including but not limited to driving style, vehicle equipment and road traffic and weather conditions. So we don't know all that much about the new Jigger yet, but we do know enough to get cracking on exactly what you should expect. So let us hook into that now. It's really simple to understand the ghetto physics of EVs. You only need three data points and numero uno equation, dude. You just need to know the kilowatt hours of the battery. You need to know the range according to the WLTP cycle is best. And you need to know the curb weight, which is in all of the specs, okay? And then you can come up with a magic number. I'll tell you about that in just a sec. There are a couple of variables with all this stuff. Some manufacturers use the usable battery capacity as the rating, and some use the greater hypothetical total battery capacity. In other words, some capacity stays in the tank, right? Some manufacturers quote it one way, and some manufacturers quote it the other way, which accounts for some variability in our magic number. And also, you need to be aware that the range is quotable in some different standards, okay? You can have the WLTP one, which is the more conservative modern one, which was introduced in 2017, and it's more aligned with real-world outcomes. It's not totally aligned, like still a bit optimistic, but the other one, which is the new European driving cycle, the NEDC one, it's wildly out of date, was last updated in like 1997 or something, and manufacturers use that when they want to overstate the range for dumb shits who might want to buy their product and think, oh yeah, I could get away with that. And then in reality, it's a bit confronting because the difference between NEDC and reality is so terrible, okay? So what I do here is I get the kilowatt hours, I divide it by the range in 100 kilometers. So if a manufacturer says the range is 420, I divide by 4.2 for 4.2 lots of 100 kilometers. And then I divide it by the mass in tonnes. So if it's 1,850 kilograms, empty, whatever vehicle, I divide it by 1.85 because that's 1.85 tonnes. And then the magic number, which I'm calling notionally E star, right? It's the amount of energy required to take one tonne of vehicle 100 kilometers and that's really useful for comparison purposes because it controls for the mass and it controls for the range and it gives you a better idea of how efficient the design is and it's like apples for apples how well are we doing this it's not unlike brake specific fuel consumption or brake mean effective pressure which are both sort of internal combustion engine diagnostic analysis metrics so what we get here, okay, is three numbers and you just have to divide them and then you can reverse engineer other EVs and see how they roll. Now the best example to use here is probably the MGZS EV because it's also coming out of Shanghai Automotive Investment Corporation and what this means is that they'll have the same kind of top level engineering directives and it's more likely to be objectively comparable to go from MG to LDV and see how they roll, right? So the MGZS EV has 
50.3, but we'll call it 50 kilowatt hours of energy in the battery. It weighs 1.57 tonnes and it goes 320 k's, which is 3.2 lots of 100 k's. And when we plug this into our magic number formula, kilowatt hours divided by range in 100 k's divided by mass in tonnes, we get 10. Let's call it 10. 9.95 is essentially 10 out of 10. So let's roll with that and see how we can use that to make some worthwhile conclusions based on what LGV has already told us about the upcoming ET60. So if we said that E star was 10 across the SAIC range, more or less, we're ballparking this, right? We're not doing the mission to Mars. We're not preparing for trans-Mars insertion out of Earth orbit or something. What we're going to do is just rearrange our magic number equation and come up with the mass, all right? So if we rearrange our magic number equation, put E star down the bottom and put mass up the top and crunch the numbers, 88.5 kilowatt hours, 330 k's of range, E star equals 10, we get 2.68 tonnes, which is 2,700 kilos in the ballpark, okay? And if we compare that to the internal combustion version of the T60, the T60 Lux in this case, it's a delta mass of 550 k. So ballpark estimate based on the magic number, based on physics, all of that stuff, the ET60 is gonna be more than half a ton heavier than the combustion one. And because some of you are doubtless looking at me like, oh, I don't trust that mathematics. I never trusted anyone educated. Oh, I get me news from Breitbart or whatever, right? We'll do a completely different sanity check to just see if we're in the ballpark, okay, for about half a ton. So what I did here was, I said, if you get your MGZS combustion and compare it to MGZS electric with 50 kilowatt hours, the delta mass on this, like the change in mass to do that, to go from combustion to electric on the same platform is 275 kilograms of additional mass. Obviously 50 kilowatt hours is less additional battery than 88.5, which is how the ET60 is gonna roll. So we need to account for this additional 40 kilowatt hours-ish of battery, okay? And if you look at the Kona with the small battery, the Kona electric with the small battery versus the Kona electric with the big battery, then that adds 150 kilograms to go up 25 kilowatt hours, which is six kilograms for every kilowatt hour of additional battery capacity. And if we use that as a benchmark for how much more mass we're gonna to have to add to go from a 50 kilowatt hour system to an 88.5 kilowatt hour system, it's another 240 kilos, which is 515 kilograms, right? Plus, I'd suggest that we probably need a beefier drivetrain as well, but I'm happy to ball, ballpark it this way at 515 and ballpark it the other way at 550 and say, well, a bit of a beefier drivetrain, we're looking down the barrel of 550 kilos either way, aren't we? So there would have to be something tremendously unexpected to see the mass of the ET60 be anything different than two independently arrived at sort of well thought out rational benchmarks, ballparks, whatever you want to call them. 
This is where we have to do a bit of informed speculation, okay, because none of these numbers are known yet, but certainly we can ballpark them because they're not changing the platform. It's the same T60 with a different drivetrain, and we're adding 550-ish kilos of additional crap. So the first thing is that if it's 2,700 kilos for the curb weight, which is essentially this curb weight of the internal combustion one, plus 550, giving us 2.7 tonnes, it's going to be completely unworkable for that vehicle to maintain its 2.9 tonne GVM because you and your lovely wife and a cut lunch is going to exceed the GVM. And that's not practical. You haven't put any shit in the back yet, right? Or your children. And it's irresponsible to leave the kids, you know. We, kids, we're leaving you here at the park because regulations kind of thing not going to happen so they're going to have to pump the gvm somehow right they're going to have to do something to the platform to pump the gvm for the electric one and i'm saying they'll probably do this conservatively to make it sort of only just workable in the ballpark of 3.1 tons something like that not too much radical redesign required to get that across the line okay and then you've got to say well we can't tow three tonnes anymore with the electric one because that's going to be 300 kilos of tow ball download. And if the gross vehicle mass is 3.1 and the curb weight is 2.7 and you subtract them, you only get 400 kilos of payload of which the tow ball download is part. So that means if we did that, that would only be 100 kilos for everything else, including you and your lovely wife and the children that you're going to leave behind at the park, right? So that's not going to work. They're going to have to drop the tow capacity and they're going to look like chumps if it's less than two tonnes. So let's just ballpark the tow capacity at about two tonnes. That's still 200 kilos of download of which the payload is therefore compromised by 50% if you do that, right? So if you were to put a two-ton trailer on a vehicle specified like this, and I'm only speculating, but I'd love you to tell me where I'm off the pace here with it in the context of informed speculation, like where is this off the pace? How can it be any different, right? So half of the payload is going to be compromised by the download if the tow capacity is two tons and if you field a ute with less than two tons of tow capacity and you're a manufacturer in australia are you not going to just set yourself up to be criticized for being a pack of chumps who are out of touch with the market anyway that's how i see the specs playing out and with all that in mind let us use our magic number equation to speculate a little bit about the range and what could happen to the range if you load her up or you hook a trailer up because that's going to be kind of important. Some people, I'm sure, are going to say, electric ute, <laughs> dingo piss creek, here I come, right? How's that going to work in the real world? Well, 330 kilometres of WLTP laboratory standard range calculation sort of thing is about, let's say, 250 in the real world. I'm taking 25% off because the standard's out of touch with reality. That's part A. And part B is when you get on the highway in an EV, range goes in any case. They're much better when they're regeneratively braking in traffic, right? So 
at a GVM of 3.1 tonnes, which is 2.7 tonnes worth of tear mass, curb weight, doesn't matter. Like, there's only 50 kilos difference, typically. So they're much closer, actually, tear and curb in the EV world than they are in the combustion world. Because in the combustion world, they're different by the balance of fuel in the tank. Like, the tear weight is... 10 litres of fuel in the tank, whereas curb weight is with a full tank of fuel, okay? So the electrons don't weigh anything in the context of vehicle masses. So tear and curb are pretty much the same thing with EVs, is what I'm saying. So if you've got your 2.7 tonne ET60 and you add 400 kilos of you and your lovely wife and a cut lunch and some of the kids, some of the ones that you didn't leave behind, then How's the range going to play out? Because we've got 250 unladen. What if we add the humans or whatever else for a total of 400 kilos that gets us to what's going to be the GVM for that car? Well, if we rearrange our equation like this, we get the range is kilowatt hours divided by our magic number divided by the mass in tonnes, which is 88.5 divided by 10, the magic number divided by 3.1 tonnes, and we get... 285 k's according to the WLTP number which has got to be modified down by 25% or so for the real world so you're looking at about 200 210 k's something like that if you load up your ute to its GVM of 3.1 tons let's say and then we could hook up a trailer couldn't we that sounds like fun and if the gross combination mass is 5,100 kilos, because that's GVM 3.1 plus two tons for the trailer equals 5.1, then we do the same process and our range turns into 174, comparing it with the WLTP scale. And if you take the 25% off for reality, 130 if you're towing. And I'd suggest if you've got a heavy thing to tow a long way, that's going to get old because the recharging points are not neatly spaced every 130 k's. You're going to have to stop a bit early and you're going to have to stop for quite a while each time. Okay, so let's say you're a tradie and this is a work vehicle and you come back every day and the, the tank's a bit empty, like the tank of electrons is a bit empty and you've got to plug in and top it right up so you can do whatever the hell it is you do during the day, cut stuff up, deliver stuff, whatever it is, mow those lawns, whatever. You've got to go from this house to that house to this house to that house to do your service calls, whatever. Then to get from 5% to 100% only takes 9 hours if you can charge up at 11 kilowatts. But of course, 11 kilowatts is predicated on you having three-phase power at home. Most people only have single-phase power at home, and that limits you to 7.4 kilowatts, right? And the difference in charge time is going to be proportional, inversely proportional, to the difference in power. So instead of nine hours, it's going to take 13 and a half. And that means if, for whatever reason, you get home at midnight and you're in that condition and you need to be full the next day, it's going to take until after midday to be full on single phase. And it's going to take until, like, 9 or 10 a.m. even if you've got three-phase power. So to me, this does not sound like an ideal set of circumstances for everybody who might use that ute, especially 
if you're a tradie who uses it for work and then you go out to sport and then you come back and then you do something else and you come back and you come back at 10 p.m. Even if you come back at 10 p.m., that means you're only going to be putting 80% in if you don't leave home the next day until 10 a.m. And what I see this doing, like, for example, not allowing 22 kilowatts of charging out of three-phase, which is the hypothetical power delivery capacity of three-phase power, right? That'd cut the charge time to five hours or something. But they do this to protect the inverter, okay? And the difference there is it limits the number of people who will find this a suitable arrangement. And if you've only got single phase power, that limits it again, because this is a hell of a long time to have to wait to be good to go 100% full again. And I get it that some people will actually not be compromised by this at all. Like if that ute is stuck on your hobby farm and you've got solar on the roof and you only ever drive a few k's into town and pick up some fertilizer or some bales of hay for the stock or whatever, and you only just drive around on some good level gravel tracks on your property because it's not four wheel drive this ute. But if that's you, then you'll come back and your vehicle will be charged right up and you'll be good to go and this will never be an issue for you but it sure as shit is going to be an issue for some people so if you're running a business or even a household then the price is going to matter but it's really salient in the case of businesses especially small businesses like lawn mowing runs and delivery services and service technician kind of businesses where the ute is fundamentally the largest piece of plant and equipment on the balance sheet okay so We've got to ballpark the price. What's it going to be? Should you discard it or is it still a starter based on the price? And to ballpark the price, I started with the combustion MGZS and I compared that with the MGZS EV. And of course, what they do on the production line there is they don't install everything to do with combustion and they put a 50 kilowatt hour electric powertrain in that vehicle. And the delta on the price for making the combustion one into the EV with a 50 kilowatt hour system is plus $15,000, which is substantial in its own right. But the LDV is not plus 50 kilowatt hours, it's plus 88.5. So what's the extra 38.5 gonna cost? And to ballpark that, what I did was I looked at the Kona EV with the small battery versus the Kona EV with the big battery. And essentially, it adds 25 kilowatt hours and $6,000 to the price. And if you divide them one by the other, it's 240 bucks for every kilowatt hour. And we've got to add 38.5 of them at $240, which is $9,000 on top of the 15 grand for a total delta on the price of $24,000. Now, even if we give that a discount for being Chinesium versus South Koreanium or something, then we're still talking about $65,000-ish drive away for the ET60 LDV. This is 65 grand for an LDV, which is not that expensive in the context of EVs, but it's pretty friggin' expensive in the context of anything wearing an LDV badge and the basic proposition that statistically every purchaser of LDV in the nation has used in order to justify its acquisition so far, right? Which is, it's cheap, mate. 
So the bottom line, if you read the press release or you read the stories that orbit this and you want to know, should I buy it or not? Well, I can't tell you, dude, because that depends on your usage case and what sort of value you attribute to intangibles like doing the virtuous thing or whatever. I can only advise you about the practicalities. But the bottom line is your options are going to be buy an ET60 for a price like 65000 bucks. It's going to have tiny tow capacity compared with every other ute. It's going to have a low payload compared with every other ute. It's going to have essentially no range compared with every other ute. It's going to take a long time to top up in between, you know, driving a very short distance if you're towing. It's going to take 13 hours to recharge fully at home if you've only got single phase power and it's only going to be two-wheel drive. So despite the fact that this is a dual-cab ute, it is not going to be an off-roader. For the same 65000 bucks, I'd suggest to you that you can buy a Hilux SR5 4x4 pickup, right? Or a Ranger XLT with the 2.0-litre bi-turbo engine in 4x4, or a Nissan Navara Pro 4X dual-cab, right? They're all about 65,000 bucks. Or you could buy a Triton GSR and a $5,000 ARB gift card to make it even worse at great expense. Or, you know, if you wanted to be rational about it, I suppose you could dump the five grand into an eight by five two-ton ATM trailer. You'd get one fully galvanized, brakes, good to go for five grand and that would cost you 65 grand as well and i ask you you know if you take the filter of virtue out of all of this and the filter of environment and the ridiculous proposition of yeah but i'm saving money on fuel dude you're spending 65 grand to save money on fuel fuel doesn't cost very much right if you take all of that irrational filtration away which one of these seems like a superior option to you. This is the bridge that you've got to walk across if you're thinking about buying the LDV ET60 based on the hype that has only just started and will doubtless continue for the next several weeks.